0: Welcome to the My Breast, My Health podcast. My name is Tasha Gandhi Mahaja and I'm your host, and I'm also a breast cancer surgeon. In these podcast episodes, I interview experts in the field of medicine, nutrition, as well as the health and wellness space. I also share inspiring stories of those who have been affected by breast cancer. Thank you so much for joining me. Today, I am joined by Ina Butt, who has an inspiring story to share. Ina was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 30. And at that time, she had just started a new job and relocated their home to allow their young son to start his new school. Her life was turned upside down in an instant. Aina is a British South Asian and her family rallied around her, supported her through her treatment. She moved to her parents' home and she was protected from the outside world. However, she soon learned that the subject of cancer, let alone breast cancer, was not a topic that is openly talked about within the South Asian community. She soon learned that there were so many prevalent myths surrounding breast cancer that she knew she needed to do something about it. In this episode, she shares her inspiring story. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Ina Butt. Hi Anna, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. So excited to have you on because it's been a bit tricky getting um, our times arranged. Um, It has been.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: No, it's an absolute pleasure. So you have done a tremendous amount of work um, through your charity work and I suspect some people listening um, already know who you are from that. But for those who don't know who you are, would you just tell us a little bit about your background and what it is that you do, please?
1: Of course, so um, my name's Aina. I am a mum, I am a cancer survivor, I had stage 3 breast cancer, I am a HR professional who works full time and I also had a charity and now do a lot of work around supporting breast cancer patients and raising awareness um, of breast cancer within the South Asian community, so I have several little small hats <laughs>
0: Perfect. So yeah, let's talk about your cancer diagnosis, because you were diagnosed when you were 30. And obviously, that's a time, you know, in one's life where lots of things must have been happening. You're just getting, you know, probably just um, started your family and stuff like that. So any cancer diagnosis is um, an awful thing to have to go through. But let's turn the years back and just tell us a little bit about that and what happened.
1: So, yeah, like you said, 30 is a funny age. You know, some people are excited about celebrating turning 30 and others are like, goodness me, I'm getting older. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know which one one it is. But um, I've never been the one to be um, scared or worried about getting older. I've always found it quite an exciting thing to say, oh, my goodness, I'm turning 30. This is amazing. That's amazing. Um, Yeah, I've always loved it. Um, I'm getting closer to the 40 mark now and I'm still (laughs) loving it, um, which is good. But yeah, I turned 30 in October 2014. And in, I think it must have been around November time that same year, I was um, told I had an underactive thyroid, and I could slowly start to see a little bit of weight creeping on over kind of November, December. That might have been an up uprun to Christmas, but I saw a bit of weight kind of creeping up. Right, um, and I've I've never been kind of size six eight. I've always been like a healthy size ten all my life, even after having my son, who at that time was four years old. But I thought okay I know, you've never really worked out you've got to kind of really um focus on this you're getting a bit older you've got an underactive thyroid now let's do this and I made this like everybody else new year resolution commitment that all right I know, January hits you are working out nothing fancy just at home watching some online videos because like I said my son was four my husband worked nights I worked days and, yeah, going to the gym just wasn't an option with a four-year-old at home. Yeah. Um, so I used to do workouts at home. And then one day, kind of first week of January, the end of the first week, I was working out, finished my workout and had a little bit of an itch at the bottom of my right breast and felt something quite solid, felt something quite dense under my skin. And I thought, oh, that's strange. Um, went and kind of felt my breasts and I literally felt like a big ball of a lump. my breast okay and it was quite a dense hard kind of um texture and i literally thought this is strange i went ran and woke my husband up who were it must have been about 10 o'clock at night he had to wake up around two ish to get into work i woke him up halfway in his sleep i'm sure he thought i had actually lost the plot (laughs) waking up at two o'clock in the morning he said can you feel my breast, please thanks (laughs) aina yeah what are you doing and i was like no seriously just can you Feel this because am I going crazy? And I'd gone into a little bit of a panic. I won't lie. He felt my breast and he said, "Oh, what is that?" And I said, "Yeah, it's not on the left side, is it?" And he said, "No, it's not." And then he said, "Okay, don't worry, don't panic." go to the gp tomorrow that was a thursday and he said don't panic go to the gp tomorrow get an emergency appointment and yeah let's see what they say it could be nothing babe i said okay fine yeah me being me um i'm a little bit of a know-it-all so i have to know everything so i went on to google i did research i did stats how many people at the age of 30 with no family history get cancer by the way to anybody listening not a good idea to do this it's (laughs) yeah you know google is something that can tell somebody it has as good and bad but for sometimes it can tell people who've got a flu that they're dying so that's right
0: yeah yeah dr google is not a good
1: no you know, not place not, to be in. absolutely not not when you're in a state of this it's not the right thing to do it takes you from one thing to another and um, google will tell me the total opposite tell me i'll be absolutely fine again so it's not always it's not always right yeah and um, Kind of fast forward the next day. I was at the GP. She did the, the GP did a self examination, did an examination on me. She then told me I'd be referred to a breast clinic for a mammogram. Uh They must have done an incredibly fast job on this because by Monday morning, I had a call to say, are you able to come in today for a mammogram at the Windsor Parapet clinic? Okay. I went in on Monday morning. The following Tuesday, I was called in for an appointment for my results and I literally sat in the chair in front of the surgeon and he said, I'm really sorry, Mrs. Bart, but unfortunately it's breast cancer. Right. And it was literally as direct and as cold as that. Um, Right. And yeah, I think um, yeah, everything from then was just, wow, okay, what do I do?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's such a... You know, it's a familiar story for many people unfortunately, but Yeah. it seems like everything just went so
1: fast. Yeah.
0: You know, from feeling the lump to getting that diagnosis. Yeah. So then what happened? How how did your treatment commence?
1: So exactly like you said Tasha, it was so quick. I I don't know if if it's good or bad to some extent, because, you know, everyone's very different. Some people feel that they need to really soak in what's happened to come to terms with it. Others, actually, that time makes them more worried and makes them more anxious. And everyone's different. There's no right or wrong way about how you deal with something like this. It's, It's such a difficult thing to deal with, no matter what age you are. But for me, it was so quick. It was literally kind of a week and a half from finding a lump to being very, very healthy, new job, new... New job, new... Um, I had literally started a new job as a HR business partner at Air France KLM at the time. I'd only been there less than six months. I'd been about... I started in, I think, September wow, 2014. Okay. So I'd been there about four or five months. I My son had just started his prep school, private school in September. We had just moved to a new house in September because of his private school. So we'd moved <laughs> out of London into into Cookham. Right. Into the suburbs, literally, as I'd call it in America. So we'd literally had an entire shift of our lifestyle, and that means increase in finances, obviously yeah. outgoings. Yeah. It's, it's a massive change. My son was only four years old.
0: Sure.
1: Um, and obviously, you know, being 30, I was healthy, get diagnosed, and within a week and a bit, my I, it literally sounds really crazy, but my life had literally flipped upside down. Um, I'm the second youngest in my family, and when I was diagnosed, I recall the first response was, sorry, do you mean it was or it wasn't? cancer because i couldn't act i didn't actually kind of really read it because i was so busy thinking about what google had told me yeah yeah, i'm absolutely fine the chances of you getting breast cancer are non-existent yeah it's a two percent chance for somebody under the age of 30 to get it and no family history and so forth all of that sort of stuff and then literally it got to a point where i just said okay what do i do Mm -hmm. what does this mean and i went into a very very practical mode right. of okay what's the plan what's going to happen and that i i don't even remember how long the meeting was my husband was sitting next to me and everything was just kind of laid out on the table okay missus but you're going to have to have chemotherapy we're going to have to do chemotherapy first and um, because the tumor you're at stage three at the highest grade grade three i think it is and um their tumour is the size of a golf ball. So we're going to have to shrink the tumour in order to do surgery. Right. Because um, doing the surgery then is too risky, at a tumour size of that. And um, After that, you'll have to have a mastectomy, which means you lose your breast. And um, you have the option to do a mastectomy on your, on your second one as well, if you wanted to. But at this stage, we don't know if it has spread completely, into if it's spread into the second breast or not. And then you'd have to have radiotherapy as well. Um okay. please write off that year to 2015 that was his words. Right. Um it's going to be a difficult year and make the most of the days and weeks where you are feeling well. Right. But our aim is to cure. And that was it.
0: Wow.
1: Um I wasn't given a huge amount of information after that. I was told that we're going to try to take it step by step and um, so initial was for the um consultants and the surgeons to sit together. And work out a detailed plan of which chemotherapy I should have, how I should have it, when it should start. We need to start it ASAP. So within that meeting to three within the following three weeks, when I started my chemotherapy, I had a bone scan. I had a DEXA scan, I had a brain scan. I had a full MRI, body MRI to just eliminate if the breast cancer had, the cancer had spread anywhere else because of how advanced it had got. Right. Um, and the fact that I was young and it's probably been growing at quite a a quick pace. Right. And yeah, I then had chemotherapy, which I had six rounds of, okay, which knocked me absolutely senseless. Um, I had to move in with my parents. I wasn't able to feed myself, I wasn't wow. able to walk. Okay. Um, I was constantly vomiting. I lost all of my hair. My hair was much longer than what it is now, right now, it's just below shoulders, but it was below my breast, my hair. I had literally lost all of my hair within I think it was day 10 of my first chemo. Right. i had gone in for a shower and literally everything just fell out. And then after um, chemotherapy, I did, I had a break for about four to six weeks for my body to kind of recover and the blood cells to kind of rebuild. I then had a lumpectomy and I was very, very fortunate that the cancer had had shrunk so much because of the chemotherapy being so effective that I was able to have a lumpectomy. Again, I will say to people, you have a choice. I was given a choice to still have a mastectomy. And after thinking about it for a while and actually just changed my mind a day before my surgery. Did you? I, de- I did. I changed my mind a day before my surgery <laughs> and said, can I please go with a lumpectomy? And, right. <laughs> um, the surgeon said, you can do whatever you want to do. I know, of course you can. It's the same yeah. surgeons in that, in that room. It's the same people. It's the same thing. Yeah. The surgery time is reduced. That's all. You, we want you to do what you feel is right for you. Yeah. So you change your mind whenever you want to change your mind. Just yeah. before the surgery. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so it was literally the night before. I sent him a text message and said, I'm really sorry, but I've thought about this so much. And in my heart, I'm not the sort of person I believe who will be worried and dwell on the fact that I've had cancer. Yeah. I think I will be fine and I'll be able to carry on and live my life um, with reserving my breasts as they are. Right. Could I please go for a lumpectomy? And that's exactly what I did.
0: Right. I okay. went for a
1: lumpectomy. Yes, I've got quite a bit of scarring, but I had my own breasts. And after surgery, again I had a few weeks' gap and then I had radiotherapy, 20 sessions every day, Monday to Friday for a month.
0: Right. Okay. And
1: then finally in October twenty a day before my anniversary, wedding anniversary, <laughs> I got um, the All Clear, which is oh, amazing. Great. And are you
0: on any tablets at all, or
1: no? Yes. So from then onwards, I had to. I've had a few courses changed. I had. I was on tablets. I was on tamoxifen first. And um, mm-hmm. I was then told by my oncologist within a year that tamoxifen isn't the best route for me because I've the sort of breast cancer I had. I have got quite a high chance of it um, going into my ovaries right. and getting ovarian cancer. Because um, it was quite aggressive, um, and for somebody my age and the type of breast cancer I had, it's more effective to go onto Zolodex injections which are basically ovarian suppressions, mm-hmm. and Xenostein tablets, which work together with Zolidex. Right. I did right. that for about a year and a bit. I then struggled quite a lot with the injections. Kind of being 30, 30, 31 by this point, by the time I'd finished my treatment, was quite difficult to go through your menopause pretty much because that's what it does. It keeps you into a forced menopause. Yeah. My body really, really struggled with it. I struggled mentally. I went through a huge amount of depression and anxiety over it. My workplace at the time um, weren't very great. Not Air France, KLM. I'd already left by this point. And um, I joined another company. And they weren't great and were supporting me through that journey.
0: Right.
1: And I ended up basically leaving that work and taking time out of work for about six months to give myself some time and realization of what I was going through. Yes. And then only last year, December, I took the decision that I can't carry on doing these injections and being in the hospital every month to get a top up, to get a top up and feel that rubbish. If this is what it has to be for the next five, 10 years, then I may as well go and have a hysterectomy. So yes. I had an oophorectomy. Okay. It's not a huge amount of a difference, but I had an oophorectomy. So that's removal
0: of your ovaries.
1: Ovaries and fallopian tubes. Okay. Um, last year, December... Um, which obviously forced me into a permanent menopause. But at least there's no more injections to go yeah. through every single month. There's always um, a silver lining, silver lining. Um, <laughs> in every cloud. Um, <laughs> there's no more injections to go through. And currently I'm on a break for my um, exemestine injections because I'm getting quite a lot of bone pain.
0: Right, um, okay. And they're
1: trying to figure out, why that is. Is it because of the surgery that I've had the euphorectomy? Is it because there's an underlying health condition? I'm having blood tests to see if there's any blood disorders. I've had a full body MRI, which I get results for next week, Thursday.
0: Oh, fingers crossed.
1: Fingers crossed for that, that everything's come that clear. Um. So yeah, so the journey I think still continues. And I think a lot yes. of people who are probably listening, um, could probably resonate with that that once you've had cancer, especially at a later stage, stage three, and so forth, for that um the journey kind of continues a little bit longer than what you would like it to,
0: yes, wow, well, thank you so much for showing me that because I mean that sounds like you know a, a very long journey with the ups and downs and um yeah, all, all the repercussions that come with the side effects of your treatment, and you know I think a lot of a lot of people once they finish their treatment. It's just such, you know, the the whole treatment is such a whirlwind. And then you just think, oh, my God, what has just happened there? Um, And you just need the time to just reflect and, you know, and take stock as to what has happened. And I I guess the time off that you've had post finishing treatment, presumably that helped quite quite a bit.
1: Absolutely. And I think I always say this to everybody that, you know, I've... Obviously, through my journey after where I've helped patients, a lot of people have patients have said to me that, you know, you're really positive about it and you're helping people. We struggle to talk about it and we're still crying about it. And, you know, we're three years on and we can still cry about it. We still struggle to come to terms with it. And I can't get my head around the journey. And I said, firstly, everyone's journey is so different. And secondly, you have really got to be kind to yourself and give yourself that time. I recognized quite late, I'll be honest, that I hadn't given myself that space. During my treatment, I had literally gone into this black tunnel where I didn't want to speak to anybody. I wasn't on social media anymore. I'd taken myself off. I wasn't really speaking to my friends much. I pretty much didn't have my phone with me at all, even on the days where I was feeling a little bit better. Right. I wouldn't allow people to take pictures of me. I had lost all my hair and nobody had seen me without my hair, not even my husband. So I would walk around the house with a head cap on Yes. I would sleep with a head cap on, despite sometimes a feeling of this horrible burning sensation in my head, because it just it's so hot with all the chemicals mm. and the chemo inside you and then the head cap and sleeping on it. And I was going through chemo from February to around about May time. So it right. was the time when it started to get fairly get warmer. warm. Yeah. And as your chemo sessions go on and at the later stage, the worse it gets because it's a buildup of the chemotherapy. So as it started to get quite warm. I started to have the worst part of the chemo, but I refused to take it off because I couldn't deal with the diagnosis. Um, I only ever saw myself without my head cap on once. And that was the day where it fell out in the shower. Um, And after that moment, I covered the mirror with a towel before I went in for the shower because I couldn't bear to see myself. And I think about that now and I think, how could I have not seen it in that moment? How damaging that must have been yeah. Or how difficult mentally that could have been that I could not even see myself in the mirror. Like mm. on my own, yeah. I would change and I would turn my face away from the mirror when I would change because I could not bear to see myself. And the first thing I would put on when I came back out of the shower would be my head cap. Right. And um, so I never really even saw myself. So I don't think I even really, the only memory I have of myself without hair was that one time and that was the worst memory ever. Right. So... I always say to people, don't do that to yourself. Um, allow yourself to share your journey and your pain with somebody, even if it's one person, even if it's family, if it's a stranger, if it's a friend, whoever that is, because that burden you take off from yourself and you put a little bit of burden on somebody else who's in a better mental state to cope with it.
0: Yes, yes. No, that that's really helpful. And when you're in it, you know, you're so, you're so within that bubble yeah. that you can't really see uh, the wood from the trees. No. And you're absolutely right. I think sharing your journey or sharing your story and, and it's so helpful. It's so helpful for you to, to be able to be given that permission to be kind to yourself. As you said, you know, you have to be kind to yourself and, um, you need that support uh, f- f- whoever that support will be. You know, it is from. You can't it's from. do it on your own. You, you can't do you it. On just
1: your own. can't. You really can't. I had my entire family around me, caring for me, looking after me, feeding me. You know, I wasn't able to walk. I wasn't able to feed myself. My hands would constantly shake and tremble. And um, you know, I remember so many occasions dropping a glass of water because I was trying to drink it on my own. I couldn't hold the glass. Right. And okay. I was at some points quite stubborn to say. I'm so independent. I can't believe I'm at this stage in my life that I'm having to have my older sisters and brothers, and my my mum and dad feed me. Like that is absolutely crazy. I should be doing this for them. Yeah. But I realised maybe later than not during the treatment that I I can't do that. I have to allow other people to help me. Yes. And they want to. Your loved ones want to help you. They feel helpless enough already. That's true. And um, give them the opportunity to play a role within your journey and feel useful for you.
0: Yeah, no, that's 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 really, really true. How did your family cope with your diagnosis and your treatment?
1: They all stayed ridiculously strong. I think the day I was diagnosed was, I won't lie, an absolutely horrible day. It was so morbid. It was like um, I had, was given a death sentence. And that's no fault of theirs or their reaction or mine. I'm the second youngest in the house, thirty years old. None of us have ever dealt with anybody having cancer in the family or extended family. We had no idea what to expect or what was coming. Sure, we had no idea that it's a diagnosis that you could live with after and survive from. When I told my, I told my sister initially, and my eldest sister on the phone, and I literally just cried. And my only thing was, how do I tell mom and dad that the youngest daughter might not live? Right, that was my response because even I didn't think I would. You know, because my my surgeon had said to me, our aim is to cure and to save... No, to cure, sorry. He didn't say, I know, we're going to save your life here. You know, (laughs) it was like the aim is to cure. The aim is to extend your life you know that was the wording that was used right that to me doesn't sound like i'm going to survive it means i want to live with this for the rest of my life and eventually die right. and that's not that's not true at all it's absolutely not true I, I now know several people who have had cancer for 10 15 20 30 years and are living a happy healthy life it's a sure. cancer never existed and mm. um, so i don't want anyone to think cancers, a breast cancer is a death sentence because it really isn't and when I told them, you know, within minutes, and um, my brothers and sisters had all arrived at my parents' house. My sister arrived and she goes, "You're not going to do this on your own. I'll be there with you. We'll tell mum and dad together." They had already found out through somebody. Somebody told somebody else. Okay. <laughs> yep. Don't get me started on that. <laughs> all right. Okay. Oh goodness. Um, right. Uh, some extended family. Um. Uh, Found out through my husband's family. My husband obviously told his parents. They told somebody else. And right. b- before even realising it, it had got round to my parents. And they were on their own at home and they had already found out.
0: Oh, gosh.
1: Which was horrific because by the time I'd parked outside the front door of their house and I got out of their car, I could hear them hysterically crying in the house oh. on their own. Gosh. Um, so by this point, when I had got there, within literally 10 minutes, my brothers and sisters were a big family. There's six of us, six siblings. I'm okay. the second youngest. We had we, They were all there. Um, and I won't lie, it felt like somebody had died. Either people were crying or they were quiet, like this really eerie silence in the house. Nobody was laughing. Nobody wanted to put the TV on. The kids were being told to be quiet and not make too much noise not to make it look like it was a celebration. It it was just, oh, goodness, I think back to it now and I just think, goodness, what was I thinking? What was everybody else thinking, thinking to do that? Yeah. It was just the lack of understanding of how to deal with it. Sure. But
0: I guess, you know, why would you know how to deal with it? Because you've never had to, right?
1: Yeah, and from that moment, on, on, moment onwards, they were just great, you know, especially my two sisters, my younger brother, mom and dad, and my ex-sister-in-law at the time, my younger brother's wife, they were literally, I would say, pretty much living at my parents' house to support me. My parents are elderly. They're now 70. Right. They're not the healthiest of people and um, they have health conditions. So they were there to support my parents who were trying to support me and um, to not take the power away from my parents for supporting me, really, I guess.
0: Yeah I mean it's so great that you've got such a supportive family and you know to to have that support is so incredibly you know you're so incredibly lucky to have that support because of you know unfortunately a lot of people don't have that support but to have that support is amazing Absolutely. And then of course you know your your cancer diagnosis um did take you down a path uh, because you yourself realized that within your own community Breast cancer, as as um, a diagnosis or as a topic, uh, wasn't particularly talked about. So, can you just tell us a little bit about what happened then?
1: So, during my treatment, and um, like I said, my family was literally kind of like this protected bu- bubble around me. You know, um, yeah. they literally kind of just had this big bubble around me, shielding me. So during my treatment, I didn't find out a huge amount. It was a lot of things that I found out that people had said within the community, which I found out after my treatment. And it was things like, you know, when my parents weren't shy, they weren't embarrassed to tell people I had cancer. They just right. weren't blowing a trumpet about it. And this, um, is, your,
0: this is your South Asian community? Yes, you're... the
1: South Asian, sorry, the British yeah. South Asian community. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm British Pakistani. My parents were born in Pakistan and came to the UK Goodness me, about over, about 50 plus years ago. Okay. So, you know, my dad came here when he was early, early, kind of late teens sort of age. So they've been pretty, my mum came here when she was 16. So they've pretty much lived their entire life here. And um, they have a huge um South Asian community and um, friend circle and family friends and, and people they've, you know, gone through life with and, you know, extended family friends and cousins and so forth. And, um... You know, my parents weren't quiet about my diagnosis. They weren't trying to hide it. They weren't. They didn't feel embarrassed about it. And um, my dad even, I think, at one point did an announcement in the mosque. Um, after one of the prayers, to basically just say, my daughter is going through her cancer treatment. She starts next week. Please pray for her. Keep her in your in your wishes. You know, think about her. In in, and my dad's a religious man. He prays five times a day. So does my mom. In the hope that you know, those prayers alongside my treatment will you know ease my journey as such really yes. and you know if, if you are religious and you and you have faith in whatever that is and um, there's there's a lot of um, power in prayer and, and you know and to keep you going sure you know that happened but then a lot of the times my parents heard very odd things like somebody said to my parent my dad um and uh, um, your daughter must have done something wrong in her life in order for her to end up with a cancer diagnosis it's a punishment from god really and my dads he's very religious and he's, he's brought us up in a very, very um, kind of strict environment. But my dad, as we got older, started to ease out and become quite liberal in the sense of I've done my duty to um, retain the South Asian culture. Yes. And your beliefs and values in a world of the British world and where you're living in this country. Yes. And you've got to learn to have a balance between both, not forget your heritage and who you are. But at the same time, you are living in Britain and you are British yeah. and you guys are born here. <laughs> I need to teach you guys a balance. Yeah. And I honestly, I, I, you know, I absolutely resented him being younger and not allowing us to speak English at home. And we had to speak our <laughs> language. <laughs> but I absolutely give him the most amount of respect and credit now for how he brought us up. I'm struggling to do that with my son. who's 11 now. Really am. It's not an easy job. And no. he had six of us to do it with. So he's very liberal, and he was quite taken back with that thought process that why would somebody even think that? That's not what God does. God doesn't punish his kids, yeah. you know, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and my dad kind of didn't retaliate other than, oh, um, oh, look, I need to go, basically, so I'm going to leave you to it. And, and he realized people he had to kind of push back and take away from his own energy to some extent as well. Um, And again, these things weren't told to me at the time. Somebody said to my sister that, oh, tell your sister to stop taking um, treatment and just wear a black bra. And the black bra will make the cancer go away because the color black takes away evil of some sort. Okay. And so I've heard the concept of black taking away evil. Mm -hmm. I've heard that concept before. But the connection... Of that with wearing a black bra, meaning it will take away the cancer, was a first for me to be very wow. honest with no, you. Wow, I've, no,
0: I've never heard of that. So there, no. there's quite a few prevalent myths surrounding breast cancer in the community.
1: Very much, very. There's a there's a lot of myths. It's a real taboo subject. Right. The word breast in itself is a very sexualized word within the South Asian community. It's very right. sexualized. So when you say to somebody, I've got breast cancer, it's like they don't want to hear the word breast because the word breast is sexualized. They've even forgotten that you've said cancer. They can just hear the word breast and it shuts them down completely to have a conversation with you.
0: So not alone is breast a bad word or, you know, taboo word. On top of that, you've got cancer attached to it. So it's just a double whammy.
1: That's it. It's a, it's a double, double <laughs> whammy. The word breast and cancer together is a topic nobody wants to talk about. Right. And um, even to the point, one of the, um, the co-founders, which I'll go on to of the charity, um, was handing out leaflets in Slough High Street at one point and leaflets to basically about breast cancer awareness. And women had refused to take the leaflet and said, if we take the leaflet, we're inviting cancer. We're inviting that diagnosis to us.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: Women would not self-examine. They didn't have the knowledge of it. They didn't think breast cancer even existed in a South Asian community. I spoke to women. One lady said to me, Emma, you need to stop taking treatment and just pray. It's your lack of prayer that has got to where you are. All of these sort of things. Um, I then met quite a few women after my treatment, who were also from the South Asian community, and I'm talking a very, South Asia is, is a big place. Yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? It's quite, it's, it's, quite, it's huge. <laughs> it's, it's huge, right? Yeah. And there's so many religions and cultures who live within South Asian. South Asia, you know, you've got, you know, I'll name a few, you know, Bangladeshis, you know, in, um, Indians, Pakistanis, Sri Lankans, and so forth. And within even those four that I've named, you've got Hindus, Christians, Muslim, Muslims, Catholics, Sikhs, Hindus, Yeah, Buddhist, all sorts, right? So, when you mix it, when you're from the South Asian community, I think what a lot of people who aren't from a a, a dual kind of um, a community don't realize that to mix your culture, your religion, and then being British on top is not the easiest thing at times, it's a tricky.
0: It's a tricky, it's a tricky place to navigate, right? Because you have to, yeah, you have to be respectful to all of those cultures and you're in the middle and you're having to, okay, well, my, you know, at home, I I have these values and I have these, you know, um, cultural identities that um, I have to follow. And yet, you know, I'm British, so I've been brought up in, you know, a a liberal kind of way. And it must have been, and you've got the the pressure of your community as well. So it must have been really, really hard.
1: And again, I say this, I was protected in that bubble. So I didn't see the outside world to some extent during my treatment. I just saw what was in my little bubble. Um, But then when I left, when my treatment kind of finished and I started to then talk, open up about my journey and talk to people because I realized that my voice can maybe help others. Mm. I had so many people. I went on to Victoria Derbyshire's show on BBC Mm Two to talk about the perception of breast cancer within the South Asian community. And off the back of that, a few people contacted me through Emma, social media. They must have searched my name and found it. I've got an open profile. And um, what I heard from these women was so heartbreaking that I think that was my trigger of, I have, I'm have, i in a place where I think I can do something right. and I've got to do something. I heard women say their husbands have kicked them out of the house and divorced them, told them to leave.
0: Because of breast cancer.
1: Because of, they've had a breast cancer diagnosis. Another lady told me my husband doesn't sleep with me anymore and he sleeps in a different room because of my scars on my breast. He can't bear to see me like that anymore. Another lady had told me she had hid her diagnosis from my entire family, her husband, her kids, her in-laws, in the fear of the fact of them not accepting her anymore. Another woman was beaten up by her mother-in-law because she said that because of you, your daughters will now not get married because they will know their mum had breast cancer. Wow. And and this is just a few people um that I had I and these are people who some were British born. Mm-hmm. So it's not like the, the thought process of, oh well you're not from here, you've got a backward thought process. No, mm. absolutely not. That is not how it is. Some of these people were British born, some of them were British born, some of them were educated. One of out of these was a GP who had who was going through this. Because again, yes, she's educated and she's British, but she's she's tackling her culture Absolutely. and she's, ta- she's tackling the community's perspective and what her in-laws thinks and those relationships and the burden it can sometimes bring. And I think once I heard those, that for me was a real trigger that I think I can do something. Right. It might not be massive, yeah, but I might be able to do something that could help people.
0: Right. Okay. Well, I mean that, you know, what, what an, uh, an amazing thing to, to do because, I can't imagine how you must have felt to, to listen to these myths and, you know, how, how um, all these women were treated because of breast cancer diagnosis. Um, that must have been really, really tough to, to hear. So then you, because of that, that kind of motivated you to set up um, your, your charity. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: So I had met a lady called Samina Hussein through my chemotherapy. She was um, at her last session. I was at my first session and I was placed on a chair next to her. She had basically wrote her name on a number on a piece of paper and handed it to me and said, if you've got any questions, then yeah, call me. You know, mm-hmm. and it was incredible because when you walk into a chemotherapy unit, when you're the first time walking in, you expect it to be morbid. You expect people to be crying. You expect it to be tears. It's not like that at all. It's crazy. You walk <laughs> in and people are smiling and people yeah. are talking to each other. Most people are. People are there with no headscarves on, not covering their bald head, and they're just sitting there and you know talking to each other, engaging and supporting each other. It's just. It's phenomenal. You know, people say to me, oh, Ina, you're so strong. I think, goodness me, you have not met other people who are going through. This. They're just as strong. They are right. they're incredible because, yeah. yeah, when you're pushed to that level, what option do you have? You either push through and strive or you you shut yourself down and struggle. Um, and most people, fight or flight, they, they kind of fight, right? Yeah. So, yeah, so she gave me her number and I didn't kind of really – um, again, my my personality, I'm, I'm quite headstrong. And I thought like, I don't really need anybody. I can do this on my own. <laughs> I don't want to ask for help. Um, and I didn't. And it was one point after about a week or so, when I, after about two, three weeks, when, I, when I'd when lost all my hair on my head, I was getting this really throbbing pain. And um, I thought, OK, I don't know what this is. I've tried everything. I can't understand what it is. What in the world do I do? I basically sent her a WhatsApp right. and said, hi, Samina. I don't know if you remember me. My name's Ina, I met you at the chemo unit. because, of course I remember you. Um, I said, I've got this throbbing pain in my head, what do I do? Mm. And she basically gave me advice and said, do you have a, any hair on your head? And I said, I've got maybe two strands, literally two strands, which didn't right. fall out by itself. It was a crude, daisy strand of of <laughs> my head. Yeah, just <laughs> clinging on, just, just clinging on. Clinging <laughs> on to those last two strands, not getting rid of those. Yeah. Um, and she said, um, well, it's those hair strands. The pressure of those strands is so heavy on your hair follicles that it's causing pain to your head. Right. And I said, it, it can't be. It's like two three strands, literally. I said, I could probably count them for you. And she said, no, I'm going to try it. Shave off that bit and you'll be yeah. better. And I did. And it was. The pain had gone. Literally like magic. Okay. And from that moment, we started to connect a little bit more and we would touch base a little bit more. And again, not a huge amount during my treatment because my phone wasn't with me and I was away with the fairies most of the time, to be honest. yeah. Um, but after the treatment, when we started to feel better and then I had heard all these stories, we started to connect a bit and join dots. And then we both ended up at a BBC recording doing a show for the BBC outside of Victoria Derbyshire's show a documentary they were doing on the perception of breast cancer for BBC One right and we ended up in London and in, in this place I can't remember the name of the building now where they were doing the recording and filming and she was also invited and so was I wow. and then we looked at each other and we said oh my goodness you're I know you <laughs> yeah and from that we kind of connected again and it kind of grew from there and then we were actually pulled together by our oncologist, Dr. Tanvi, who was my oncologist and hers, who basically said, you're both very powerful, strong women who have dealt with this diagnosis incredibly well. And I think you two could do something amazing together. And you've both shared the, the need and excitement to want to do something. Right. And that's how we came together. And we both um, decided to set up a charity called Sagun Through Cancer. Sagun means peace and tranquility right. in, in Urdu. And we believed that actually we could make an impact by supporting South Asian women going through breast cancer through their journey. We could educate the community about breast cancer by doing workshops within the community, talking about raising awareness about self-examination, why you should self-examine. We also did um, school workshops, so doing workshops at schools for girls aged 14, 15 up to 18,
0: 19, yeah.
1: talking about the myths busting some myths and facts and, and yeah, talking about self-examination and the importance of it.
0: Wow. That's amazing. And so you must've reached so many, so many women out there who've either gone through it, their families, presumably, you know, help raise the awareness of how important it is to be breast aware and how to do an examination. How, you know, how did you find um the impact that you you've 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 done, you know, through that through that charity?
1: Honestly, it's 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 been what just two years, just over two years. It's been a phenomenal journey. I didn't, you know, I, I, I remember saying that, oh, you know, if I can just reach out to one person and change one person's perspective, I'd be so blown away and happy. If I could have one person message me and say, know I checked my breasts. And I found something, and it's caught early. Thank you so much. Or I checked my breast and found something that was benign. Thank you so much. And now I self-examine. I'll be like, goodness me, hallelujah. That's it. Like, yeah. I would be content. And I'm so fortunate to say that we have been able to do so much more than that. To the point where I did a talk on um, uh, International Women's Day for State Bank of India, UK. Oh wow! Okay. For all of their staff, there was. God knows how many people on that on that webinar, um, and I did a talk for them um, about self-examination. Um, we've had incredible businesses like um, Jack Harvey London, Sima BMUA, MUA, um, Holding Hearts Therapy, Tropic Skincare Ambassadors, literally choosing us as their charity partner and donating to us and supporting us to raise funds. And we have been, we have gone into schools, we have gone into community groups. I have had hundreds and thousands of women say, thank you so much because of you. I've had a conversation with my daughter about breast cancer. Yes, I've been actually, which I was dreading to do, because in our community, I've not been brought up. My parents didn't talk to me. My mum didn't talk to me about breast cancer, about examining my breasts. And you've given me That understanding and space to feel comfortable to have the conversation with my sister now. And my daughter's doing it now and she's 15. We've got, we had a befriend, we've got a befriending service where if you're going through a breast cancer journey, you can contact us and we will match you to somebody as close as possible to your age, your diagnosis, your background, your language, who can support you through your journey and just be a friend and talk to you. Yeah. You know, someone who's like you, who's going through a journey like you. That's something I've really struggled with through mine. I was 30 South Asian with cultural barriers and British born and a professional with a four-year-old. I didn't have anybody who was like me who would go for cancer. (laughs) You know, I contacted so many charities and businesses and Macmillan and breast cancer now. and All of these charities do an incredible job. Don't get me wrong. But none of them were able to match me to a 30-year-old South Asian girl who had been diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. Not one. Which is... That's going to be crazy, right?
0: Yeah. Totally crazy.
1: I'm not the only one, surely. <laughs> I mean, surely not. You no, know, I know we're a minority. I think, and um, 30 year olds under the under the age of 30 blows like two percent of diagnosis population. So yeah, this, we are a minority, maybe being then South Asian and a stage three makes it even less of a, a population. But I am pretty alone. sure I'm not no, I'm not a alone. And actually through the charity, I've realized that I'm most definitely not alone. I have met several people who have been going through this journey in their 30s, who are South Asian, some who had kids, some who didn't. You know, so you're not alone. But, you know, we've had this befriending service and I was a befriender for two or three of the patients, and two of them I still talk to, and you know, when you hear them say, Ina, thank you so much, just that five minutes of talking to you has given me some hope or it's just picked up my spirit yeah or it's made me realize that I'm not going crazy that does happen because of treatment or that is exactly that is normal it's just nice it's so, it's so I feel so grateful I'll be honest to be able to be able to do that and give somebody that feeling
0: you know, that honestly, I think what you've, you've started out and, you know, all the work that you've done through, through the years with the charity, um, must've been such a powerful thing because you must've helped so many women. And it's such a, as you said, it's such a taboo subject to be talked about within within certain communities, you know, whatever community it is, it doesn't have to be necessarily a South Asian community. You know, it could be, you know, in other communities. Um, and you, it's really difficult to talk about breast cancer for some people. So uh, for you to have been able to allow this conversation to thrive and flourish and you know, give permission to to people who have been in the same position as you to be able to talk about it with others, that must have been such a powerful, uh, powerful thing to be able to impart. So, you know, how did working through the, the charity impact you as a person?
1: Honestly, it... Um I'll I'll share my details on my page, but it's crazy because whenever I do videos, I always say to everybody, Thank you. I share my journey as well on that. So I'm I'm very open about my journey because I truly believe how can I share, ask other people to be open about breast cancer, to talk about breast cancer. It's not a taboo subject. Um, you're not alone when I'm not sharing mine. Yeah. And I'm being closed off. So I really put myself in quite a vulnerable position, which is not normally like me, to share personal things. And I don't, um, and even kind of friends who've known me for 20, 30 years who I've grown up with and my siblings, I don't even talk to them about personal things. <laughs> so it was quite a... Um, I put myself a little bit out there to do it, but I realized very quickly that, goodness me, doing this on social media, where anybody and everybody can see me, seems to be a very vulnerable place. But in a very strange way, the followers, I felt like they were like family. It sounds really crazy. I felt like it was a safe haven. And actually whilst helping others, I felt like I was getting therapy. Yeah. Hearing other people going through what they're going through made me realize that I know what you were going through was also okay. Yes. And you don't need to pretend like you were okay because you weren't okay at the time and it was hard and it's it's been so therapeutic for me. And um, a lot of people have said to me, "How are you able to still go through a part of a journey where you're still struggling with your health and then help other people and not have your cup, you know, overfilled?" Mm-hmm. And I said because what I'm doing is something I love and I truly am at a point in my life and at a stage in my life that I have learned to let go of things that I can't control. So if it's some if I cannot control the outcome of what my MRI result will be, then I will learn to let it go and not waste the next seven days being depressed, upset, and down. What if that result is bad? I've then wasted another seven days that could have been happy seven days. I'll <laughs> be doing with it when that time comes. And yeah. then take it from there. I'm not going to, life is way too precious to waste on something that you can't control. Yeah. And this charity and that platform, and without, if anybody's listening, who listens to this, who is a part of my page and does follow, honestly, I say this a lot, but I will say it again and again. I'm so grateful for those people who listen to me because they've, without even realizing it, they're um helping me at the same time as well.
0: Right. Wow. That's incredible. I mean, I think, you know, thank you for always, always kind of being vulnerable. Being vulnerable is not always easy. And you do share your story so incredibly truthfully and honest, honest. Um, and it, and it actually, you know, it shows, it shows that what you put out there is helping so many, many you know, so many people. So, um, thank you for being out there and thank you for sharing your story because, um, so many people, um, gained you know value from that. Um so we're going to be wrapping things up now. What 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 is uh, what does the future hold for for Ina in terms of your charity work and and the work beyond that?
1: So, I'm unfortunately um, not part of Circum through Cancer as a charity anymore. I have stepped away as co-founder and trustee of the charity. The charity still remains, and um, with Samina Hussain, but I'm no longer, unfortunately, a part of it. I am, although, doing my own thing. Um, I have an Instagram page and my Facebook page, and and. What I'm basically doing is, is, um, I've just narrowed what I want to do in order to make an impact and, 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 and help people. So I've got three key pillars, which is drive, thrive and strive. And they very quickly mean is drive is I want to drive change within the community. I want to educate the community. I want people to be um, breast aware. I want people to be able to speak about it. I want people to never feel like they have to do this journey on their own. I want kids to be knowledgeable. I don't want them growing up thinking wearing a black bra is going to make their cancer go away. I do not want people thinking that, you know, I want them to have knowledge. That's it. I want them to have knowledge. So that's my drive, driving knowledge and change. Drive, thrive is I want people to thrive through their treatment. Um, I truly believe you can. I believe if you keep a positive mindset, I believe if you keep your mind strong, your body follows most of the time. And I want people to go through this journey of breast cancer, and yeah, thriving through it and conquering it and not letting cancer take control, but actually taking control of the cancer. And they can do it. I want everyone who's ever, gone through cancer I was going through it now to believe that that is absolutely possible and then strive. Um cancer as you can see from me for many isn't a journey that ends and I want cancer people to strive for the rest of their life from what they've learned I want cancer to be something that they think about and remember as a journey that's built them to be stronger to be more grateful to be more resilient I want them to see cancer not as a journey that they want to forget and never imagine it happened because we tend to do that right we tend to block out bad memories and we think oh that never happened i don't want that to be the case for cancer i want people to remember it's something that has taught them a valuable lesson that has totally changed and shaped their lives and they can strive through that journey and It's a journey that you have to continuously keep practicing and learning through gratitude, through mindfulness, through self-love, through self-care, through positive thinking. So, yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm going to continue to do school workshops and community workshops to educate kids through the DRIVE program. Um, I do loads of lives on my Instagram page talking about my journey, talking about the honesty and reality of what side effects it is and what it does. I'm sharing journeys of other cancer patients on there where they're being so raw about their journey. Right. I'm going to, yeah, continue to do all of that and hopefully to make an impact.
0: That's amazing. Well, you're gonna be really busy from the sounds of things. Um, I, I hope so. <laughs> so drive, thrive and strive. Strive, yeah. Perfect. there's such, you know, powerful three words there to, to end this this episode. Um I thank you so much for coming onto the show. For if you want people to to find you and connect with you, can you tell us where they should go?
1: It is very nice and easy. It is at my name Ina I Y N A B U T T Ina at Ina Butt.
0: Perfect, and um, that's it. Perfect, Ina Butt. I will link um, that you know in in the show notes. So uh, if people want to check you out, definitely go there. So yeah, thank you so much once again. It's been an awesome conversation um really really um you know i thank you for sharing your story and for all the amazing work that you you have done and you will continue to do so thank you so much aina thank
1: you so much tasha take care bye thanks bye
0: aina thank you so much once again for coming onto the podcast what an absolutely fantastic conversation that was do connect with aina on social media you can find her at aina so that's i y n a b u t t She's very active on social media and she shares her stories um, with incredible authenticity and honesty. So do check Aina out. And I will leave the links in the show notes, which you can find at mybreastmyhealth.com forward slash episode 40. If you're enjoying this episode, um, I thank you and do hit the subscribe button so that all the new episodes come straight to your podcasting app of choice so you don't have to download it yourself. And also, if you have a spare few minutes, maybe even 30 seconds, um, I'd be ever so grateful if you could leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That would mean the world to me. So this is the final episode of season two. Um, I can't believe I've done um, all of these episodes and I'm going to take a little break, but I will be back. Rest assured, I'll be back in the autumn for season three, and I'm so excited because I've got so many amazing guests lined up for you. So definitely check it out soon. And if you haven't, you know, listened to the back catalogue, do check them out. I'm sure you will find an episode or two that you will find useful. In the meantime, have a great summer, look after yourselves, and I shall see you in season three very soon. Take care. Bye.